Hello again, friends. Welcome on into episode 106 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield. Happy to be back in the big chair for today, Thursday, May 7th, 2020. You got a little bit of a different show for you today. In the second half of the show, we're going to do another mock. Believe it or not, mocks are back. And no, it's not a mock draft. It's a mock schedule. I'm going to put myself out on a limb and try to predict what the New England Patriots 2020 schedule might look like. Why? Well, we're going to get that a little bit later today or tonight, depending on when you're listening to this. Because on Thursday night, sometime prior to 8 p.m. Eastern, these schedules will be released for the 2020 season. So I'm going to talk a little bit in the second half of the show about thoughts on what the schedule might look like just generally on sort of a macro level and then sort of a rough prediction of what the Patriots might face in the year ahead depending on what the year ahead looks like. In the first part of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Baltimore Ravens. And I know this is a Patriots podcast, but I've got some analytical thinking to do with you. So we're going to work through that together. But before we do anything else, you know the drill here at the outset. Follow along with the hijinks at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Check out the work. Places like InsideThePylon.com, Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio. Not one, not two, but three Count them three SB Nation websites. Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and right here at Pat's Pulpit. Now we're going to get into the Ravens in a second, but two things off the outset. One, you might hear a little background noise in this episode. And that's because the natives are restless. I'm recording this. It is 420. I'll just let that one hang out there for a second. But it's 4.20 Easter on Wednesday afternoon. And here in the state of Maryland, the kids just learned in the past hour or so that they're not going back to school this year. And it's raining. And they've been cooped up in the house without school for now seven weeks. And they had a lot of sugar at lunch. So you're going to hear some background noise in this one. Now, being the professional podcaster that I am, this is a professional account after all, you might expect me to do some post-editing on this. And I may, but in all likelihood, I'm just going to push send on this bad boy. Because like I said, we're on seven weeks of happy, happy quarantine fun time. And the natives are restless. And that includes Papa Bear here. And that sound you just heard was the kids on the floor above me jumping up and down. So that's the first thing at the outset. Second thing at the outset I want to mention is this. I've I've had some DMs from people, and I, I always say, look, the DMs are always open, right? DMs are always open. I'm here to help you. If you're struggling with something, if you're working through things, help me help you, right? And, and I've gotten a number of DMs from people saying, look, you know, they're cooped up. They're feeling cooped up. A lot of people have, like I said, reached out, you know, we're in week seven of this. For many people, it's going to go into weeks eight, nine, and 10, and perhaps beyond. And you're feeling cooped up. You're struggling with it. And I get it. I am too at times. And, and so I'm going to suggest here something that I've suggested to a lot of people, which is Peloton. And this is not some sort of sponsorship or anything like that. It's just a literal personal plug. I think it could help because they've made their classes free for 90 days, no credit card required, nothing like that. 
Just go sign up free for 90 days. And you don't need a bike. In many cases, you don't even need anything but your body. They've got cardio classes, body weight classes, stuff for beginner, intermediate, advanced, different instructors whose classes you can take. At first, my wife sort of talked me into it because I was feeling like I've described. Other people have been telling me they've been feeling a little down, a little frustrated because especially in that post-regular season time of the year, that's when I really sort of dive back into the gym. You know, I'm lifting, you know, six days a week, spend like an hour or so at the gym each day. Now that's not there anymore. And the stuff I can do around the house doesn't really re- replicate that. And so my wife is like, look, you know, try the Peloton stuff. Maybe you'll get something out of it. And for the first couple of classes, I was kind of hooked. Now I'm like doing like two or three a day. And I'm starting to look forward to them. And there are some results, you know, physically, but more importantly is the mental stuff. Because I'm feeling a little bit better about things. And so if you're sort of like I was, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, or like some other people that I said, I've, I've been talking to in the DMs and I'm sort of struggling things, as I recommended to them, give Peloton the free classes a shot. It might help you. It might not. Like I said, like I've said many times before, I'm just an idiot with a microphone, but it could help, you know. And what else are you doing? Listening to this show? That's not improving your mental health. Let's be honest. The only way this show is going to improve your mental health is you can sort of point and laugh at your phone or your smart speaker or whatever and say, listen to this idiot. So maybe that's doing you some good. Let's talk the Baltimore Ravens. And I know, again, this is a Patriots podcast. And at times, I dive into different teams. And I, I felt the need over the past 24 hours to dive in to the Baltimore Ravens draft. Because we all know that draft grades are pointless for the most part, right? There, there's, there's no way you can really tell, sitting here in May, who had a good draft and who didn't. You can't really put grades on them because we don't know what's going to happen with these guys. Take the, take the Packers. That draft could be a home run if Jordan Love hits. Or not. We just don't know. And so it's easy to crush them in the moment, but say if Jordan Love hits, it's an A-plus draft. So draft grades, like mock drafts and everything else, like mock schedules... You know, they're a bit of an exercise of futility in the moment, but a necessary evil. So we do it. The Baltimore Ravens were viewed by many people as having a great draft. Patrick Queen, J.K. Dobbins, Justin Matabuke, Malik Harrison, Devin DuVernay, James Prochet. Like, a lot of people looked at the Ravens and said, man, they had a fantastic draft. They might have got linebacker one a pick 28. J.K. Dobbins, great fit for their offense. Malik Harrison, perfect. We got a pair with Patrick Queen. They got two slot receivers. They want a slot. They got a slot. But people started to sort of criticize the draft. And I actually, I had heard this from somebody, a Ravens fan. They sort of told me, and somebody that covers the team as well. They sort of told me this in confidence, you know, that they weren't exactly happy. And they told me this like the night of night two, that they weren't happy with the draft because of the positional value. They went early at positions like running back and linebacker, positions that you can address later in the draft. And this is sort of built up over the past couple of days, particularly with respect to the J.K. Dobbins pick, running back at pick 55. And seeing this sort of dichotomy drove me on Wednesday morning to start thinking about 
addressing it. So I did. I wrote a piece over Touchdown Wire. I gave it a title, but the editors changed it. Editors know what they're doing. I'm glad they did. But they changed it on J.K. Dobbins and why some running backs matter more than others. And at the start of the piece, I sort of lay out the case against J.K. Dobbins. And again, you can sort of read it, but I talk about the case for positional value, particularly with respect to the running back position, right? And that's what we're talking about here. And sort of people in the sort of analytical world say that you don't need to spend early draft capital on a running back. You certainly don't want to pay a running back big money. You know, because whether it's through statistics like EPA, which I'll touch on in a second, or just how the game works, running backs don't matter. And that's the pithy four-word phrase. It's sort of like if you ever watched the West Wing and during President Bartlett's second campaign, the 10-word answer, right? Well, tell me the next 10 words because it's not often that easy. You know, running backs don't matter or read my lips, no new taxes. That fits on a bumper sticker. It's a nice little catchy political slogan. But life isn't guided by four or 10 word answers. So while running backs don't matter is the catchy way of expressing the idea, the true crux of the argument with respect to the quote unquote running backs don't matter is that an individual running back success is largely determined by factors outside of the running back himself and his skill set. It's also dependent on things like the design of the play, the execution of the play up front, the ability of the offensive lineman, the defense that they're going against, whether the box is stacked or not, whether the box is light or not, the game situation, game script. So many other things go into a running back's individual success that you could get nearly the same level of production from a running back you get either later in the draft or cheaper on free agency. And there's all sorts of studies you can look at. But the sort of the genesis of this idea, quote, again, the pithy running backs don't matter, was the, quote, unquote, MVP candidacy of Todd Gurley. The year the Rams made it to the Super Bowl to play the Patriots, a lot of people thought Gurley might be an MVP. And other people, and I put myself in this category as well, said, wait, hold on. There's more to it than Todd Gurley. First of all, Sean McVay is running almost everything out of 11 personnel. So they're going up against a ton of light boxes. That gives the guys up front some advantageous angles. When you've got six to block six or seven to block five, you're going to have an advantage. And the offensive line was doing a great job. And yes, Gurley's good. But you could probably get good, if not better, production from somebody else. And numbers eventually bore that out because later in the season, Gurley got hurt. In comes in C.J. Anderson. On Anderson's runs, the Rams averaged 0.13 expected points added. On Gurley's runs, the average dropped to 0.12. That was barely higher than the average for Malcolm Brown, 0.10. In fact, Malcolm Brown finished ahead of Todd Gurley in percentage of run attempts that ended with a positive EPA, 60% to 53%. Anderson led this running back room with 76% of his handoffs resulting in a positive EPA. And those were numbers from Sports Info Solutions that Stephen Ruiz over at For the Win cited in an article about Gurley's, quote, MVP candidacy. And so that's sort of the crux of the idea. You look at EPA, expected points added, scoring points is, again, the goal of an offense 
CJ Anderson's doing more for you. Now, you could also quibble with that and say, look, CJ Anderson, he was running more north south, right? And so some of Gurley's runs that are more outside zone, wide zone, there's a chance those get bounced and strung out for no gain or a loss. Whereas Anderson's more an inside zone, north south type of guy. Those plays are going to get you something. But still, numbers sort of backed it up. And you can even look at a team last year like the Tennessee Titans, right? A team that everybody said, look, they rode their running game to the playoffs. Well, in in week 17, Bed Baldwin on Twitter writes for The Athletic Seattle. He has a great website, RBSDM. Yes, runningbacksdontmatter.com. And he allows you to look at the box scores and EPA per play for every player in an individual game. Week 17, the Titans beat the Texans to get into the playoffs, right? Derrick Henry, 32 carries for 211 yards and three touchdowns. Ryan Tannehill, 13 of 20 for 198 and two touchdowns. Henry's rushing attempts had an EPA per play of 0.31 per attempt. Tannehill's dropbacks, 0.78 in terms of EPA per play. Michael Pruitt had two targets for 13 yards, and that accounted for an EPA per play of 0.97 per target. A.J. Brown, four catches on eight targets for 124 and a touchdown, an EPA per play of 0.70, more than double Henry's output. And so if you look at it in terms of EPA per play, even a great ground game might not be as productive in terms of adding expected points, as a mediocre passing game. Now, you could quibble with, you know, EPA per play. Maybe it's not the cleanest statistic. Maybe it's a bit noisy. Okay, there's an argument there. But there's a big body of evidence that passing is king in today's NFL. And so, why take a running back in the second round? Now, the reason why you might do that is if you're a team like the Baltimore Ravens, right? Right? If you're a team like the Baltimore Ravens that sort of relies on the ground game, maybe life's a little bit different from you. And so a general rule might be, you know, don't waste early draft capital draft capital on a running back. Let's consider now the specific case of the Baltimore Ravens because this is a team that last year, okay, everybody says 11 personnel is now the base package in the NFL, right? Yeah, the Ravens, that was their most popular personnel package. They used it 44% of the time. Only six teams used that package less. The Arizona Cardinals, they used it 37% of the time, but they're mostly a team that uses a ton of 10 personnel. They use that 26% of the time. The Broncos used it 43% of the time. The Vikings used it a league fewest 18% of the time. They were a heavy 12 and 21 personnel team. Similar to the 49ers, they used 11 personnel just 30% of the time, but relied on both 12 and 21. The Eagles used 11 personnel just 38% of the time, and the Titans used it on just 41% of their offense of snaps. Now, the Ravens, again, 44% of the time, three wide receivers on the field. Now, they used 12 personnel, two tight ends, two running backs, on 17% of their offensive plays. They used 21, which is two running backs, two wide receivers, and one tight end, on 12% of their plays. They used 22, two running backs, two tight ends, and one wide receiver, on 16% of their plays. When you combine 21 and 22 personnel, that accounts for 258 offensive plays or 38% of their offense. 38% of the time, they had two running backs on the field. 
You add in the 12 personnel, another 161 plays, that gets you to 45% of their offense. If you really want to get nutty, they use 13 personnel, three tight ends on 7% of their plays, meaning that on the majority of their offensive plays, they had two or fewer wide receivers on the field. And so if the idea is, look, you, you want to help the passing game, the passing game is king, that's probably true for 85% of teams, but for the Ravens, they usually only just have two wide receivers on the field. And think back to their draft last year. What did they do in the early rounds last year? Round one, Hollywood Brown. Round three, Miles Boykin. And there's two wide receivers right there. Now, if you want to say, look, they need to get 11 personnel. Maybe they need to add a slot guy, right? Because those are two more boundary guys. What did they do later in the draft? Devin DuVernay and James Prochet. They got a slot receiver later in round three. And then later on day three. And why were they able to do that? Because slot receivers are devalued. Because they get that two-way go, right? It's much harder to be a boundary receiver because you've got the sideline right there. You can get forced into that. It's much harder when defense is trying to take something away from you, but that's where you have to get to. Slot receiver with that two-way go, it's an easier job. Now, the guys they drafted, Pro Football Focus described Devin DuVernay as, quote, one of the top receivers in the class, close quote. They drafted James Prochet. Prochet was described by PFF as, quote, a guy tailor-made to play slot in the NFL. Quickness and route running are pluses. Deadly with a two-way go. Perfected hesitation move to freeze defenders on in-and-out routes, close quote. They did play the positional value game. They added a wide receiver to fit what they're doing offensively, two guys, in fact, later in the draft. And now with respect to the running back they added, And J.K. Dobbins, who's a fit schematically, his contract is going to be a base salary of about $610,000 per year. Similar to Josh Uche, who the Patriots just signed, right? Mark Ingram was signed last year in free agency, either a three-year, $15 million deal. He's due a base salary of $4 million this year with a 1.3 signing bonus. Next year, base salary of $5 million. But the team could move on from him and just face a dead cap number of 1.3 and roll with J.K. Dobbins, which means next year, rather than paying Ingram base salary of the $5 million plus the $1.6 million signing bonus, they could move on from him, eat the dead cap number of 1.3, and then you've got what's going to be less than a million dollars. So you're saving money moving to Mark Ingram. So in a way, they did factor in positional value. It's just... They looked at slot receivers and figured, we need to get those guys. If we want to play 11, we need a slot guy. We can get those guys later in the draft. We've now got a running back who we had a first-round grade on, fall to us at 55, almost the third round anyway, and we can draft him here. And so I, I think we can say this. Generally speaking, don't pay running backs. Don't overdraft running backs. That's a good rule to live by. Because you can replace running backs with guys you get later in the draft. You can have a great ground game if you have an okay running back if you have schematic advantages or a great offensive line. But in this case, with the Ravens and what they do, it's okay. And let's not forget, part of the reason that you know people in sort of analytics Twitter were upset with this pick is the fact that the Ravens are an analytically-minded team. 
You know, they've got a full-on analytics department. People that were formerly in analytics Twitter now work for the Ravens. You know, they've got in the booth, you know, somebody that was a behavioral economics major, Daniel Stern, who was a behavioral economics major in college, sitting right next to Greg Roman. Why? To be provide a reasoned decision-making process on fourth down decisions. And the Ravens are a very aggressive team on fourth downs as a result. Eric DaCosta, their general manager. Analytics is a way that I see of organizing information. We have all these different pieces of information, bullet points and different things. How do we organize that information effectively? And how do we use that information to help us make decisions? Is it a growing field? Yeah, I think it is. Is it something we'll rely on strictly ever? No, I don't think it's the case. Is it something that will help us make decisions? I think it can be. We would be foolish as an organization to not look at that and consider that as a way of helping us be better. They're an analytics-minded team. So when they made this move, people in the analytics community were like, what are we doing? And I think they did make a reasoned decision here. They looked at what they do analytically in terms of personnel packages and realized if we want to get to an 11 personnel package, we need a better slot receiver. We can get those guys later in the draft. We also have a running back that we might have to pay a base salary of $5 million to next year. Let's get his replacement. Oh, by the way, a guy we had a first-round grade on fell to us at 55, which is almost a third round. Let's take him. And I think that's okay. Like, I think there are rules in life. Sometimes rules have an exception. And the Baltimore Ravens running game and J.K. Dobbins in the second round might be one of those. So that's just a quick thought on that. Up next, a mock schedule. Why? Because it's May. That's ahead on the Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 106 of the Sco Show. And we're to talk a little schedule now. Why? Because shortly after you listen to this podcast, we might get the actual schedule for the 2020 season. But until then, we get hours to fill and speculation to get into. So let's do that right now. And before we sort of dive into that, I think it's important first for a correction up front. I've been saying it some various places that the Patriots have a very tough road schedule and they still do, but I've been sneaking in a trip to Vegas as part of that and they play Vegas at home. So exhibit 352,000 that your boy here is just an idiot. So they get the Raiders at home. So it's not as bad, but Let's talk about their potential slate. Let's talk then about a more macro view of what the schedule might look like and then take a stab at what the schedule could be. So, you've got home games. Buffalo, Miami, and the Jets, of course. Your three divisional home games. You've got Denver, the Raiders, the Cardinals, the 49ers, and the Ravens. Those are your eight home games. Obviously, you've got road games at Buffalo, at Miami, and at the Jets. You've got a trip to Seattle to play the Seahawks a trip to the L.A. to play the Rams, a trip to L.A. to play the Chargers, a trip to Kansas City to play the Chiefs, and a trip to Houston to play the Texans. So marinate on that one for a bit. Let's talk more big picture. And I, I think there's really no way to sort of talk about the schedule without getting to the elephant in the room, which is what is the impact of the coronavirus, right? Again, kids, natives, restless, you're hearing the bannon. We don't know yet when this season will begin. We don't know yet when training camps might open. We don't know yet when facilities might open. And so I think as a general rule, we might face a scenario where the league is going to load up 
those non-conference games at the start of the schedule. Because let's face it, the second this schedule gets announced, trips have to be booked. Plans have to be made. And so if you have a situation where you put, say, Patriots-Dolphins on week one of the season, and then you decide, say, in a couple of weeks, look, we've got to push the schedule back, or we've got to just, say, play a 12-game slate and chop off the first four games. You start chopping divisional games here and there, it's going to make for an uneven schedule. And so I think the wisest course of action for the league would be to front-load those non-conference games. So all those NFC West games that the Patriots have to play, they're September. And so if the league decides we got to push that stuff back, or we got to lop off the first four games, boom, there's four games. All the non-conference stuff is gone. That gives you your conference, you know, non-divisional stuff, your first-round schedule stuff, and then your divisional games. And so when we start thinking about tiebreakers and things like that, it's a lot cleaner. Now, you might say, well, couldn't you just rearrange things? Well, say you've got a trip to Miami planned for September 1, and then you've got a trip to LA to play the Rams in November. And you're like, well, can we flip that around? Well, sure, but that gets really messy fast. And that has real-world implications for people because, let's face it, when this schedule gets announced, people are going to want to book trips. People are going to want to say, look, by November, we'll be able to move around the country a little bit more. So I'm going to go ahead and book my trip to Miami to see the Patriots down in South Beach or whatever the case may be. So I think front-loading the schedule is going to make a lot of sense, which is why you might see a season opener – for the Kansas City Chiefs, where they're hosting Carolina or Atlanta, you know, because they play the AFC West plays the NFC South. So you might see the Panthers or the Falcons on that Thursday night affair to kick things off. So that's one thing to sort of keep in mind. Now, again, I don't have any sort of inside information. There is that Schedule Leaks Twitter account, which is apparently full on fake. So I hope you didn't get fooled by that one. But I just think that it would make sense for the league to keep things clean. That's sort of one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is strength of schedule. And look, the Patriots and the AFC East in general have the toughest schedules. All four of the AFC East teams have schedules that are in the top five of the toughest schedules based on strength of schedule from the year ago, including the Patriots. It's a tough schedule. Now, as far as easy schedules, teams with easy schedules... The Baltimore Ravens have the easiest schedule on paper. Why? Well, first off, the AFC North, they get the NFC East next year. And so you're talking about two teams in the Redskins and the Giants that had picks in the top four, right? And then if you're Baltimore, you get the Bengals twice. There's a team that was picking first overall. You get the Browns. There's a team that was picking 10th. And so they get a pretty easy slate. Now, schedules and strength of schedule and all that stuff, it's all stuff on paper. You know, it doesn't really matter until the games kick off. But sitting here right now, there's a case to be made that Patriots get a really tough slate. And I've been making that case everywhere I go. Now, the Thursday Thanksgiving slate of games. I think, you know, partially as a result of potentially front-loading those non-conference games, we're going to see a lot of divisional games backloaded in the end of the year. So you might get sort of a rematch of last year's Thanksgiving game. You might get Chicago-Detroit. 
you might get a classic rivalry in that afternoon slate, say, Dallas-Washington, which would be fantastic. And I something tells me we get an NFC self Saints Bucks type game Thursday night of Thanksgiving. Why? Do you think the league's going to want to pass on the opportunity to show Tom Brady, Drew Brees, say on a holiday when everybody's at home watching football? I mean, that screams, screams national audience. Now, there could be a caveat to that. Brady Rogers. Packers make a trip this year down Raymond James Stadium to play Green to play Tampa Bay. And the idea of a Green Bay Tampa Bay game again on on Thanksgiving night in front of a national audience that's sitting in front of the TV watching football. I think the Lee will love that. So I'm I'm guessing there's a Tom Brady game Thanksgiving night. Let's get into more specifically what we think the Patriots or at least what I think the Patriots schedule could look like. Again, keep it in mind that I believe they front load the non-conference games. That means you're getting four NFC West games out of the slate early. And something tells me that the league might try to combine games in a sense to sort of minimize travel if that's possible. So you might see a scenario week one at Seattle, week two at LA to play the Rams. And that might be a scenario where the Patriots stay on the West Coast. They've done that before. Then you come back and sort of my mock schedule here. You got three home games. You get San Francisco and then Arizona, weeks three and four. And then I think they start opening up some divisional games. The reason being, if you have to lop off the first four games, then start with some divisional games like we sometimes see, right? And so I've got Miami at home. So that'd be an October type game. Then trips to Buffalo and the Jets. And then a home game against Denver, and then maybe that's a good spot for the bye. Then coming out the bye, at least in my little mock schedule here, at Houston, home to play the Raiders, at Kansas City, home to play the Ravens, at the Chargers. Then you finish up with Jets at home, at Miami, Buffalo at home. I think the league will want to have Buffalo, New England be that Week 17, this might matter type of game. Now, maybe they flip that a little bit, tweak it a little bit, because we saw Buffalo in Week 16 last year. Maybe they think... You know, we want it in week 16 because that will be a game that matters, especially in week 16. But week 17 might be an incredible matchup too if those two teams are fighting for the AFC East. So that's a rough crack at what a schedule could look like. And I ask you this, what do you think that record looks like if that's the schedule? Something to ponder. I'm not going to dive into that because this sort of mock schedule might be valid for the next five hours at most. But that's sort of a rough stab at the schedule in my mind. I can't wait to see if I get any of these right. But hey, like all mocks, they're fun for five minutes. You forget about them until you screw everything up. Then you get yelled at on Twitter. But that will do it for today. I will be back Monday. Monday we'll have some reaction to the actual schedule. We'll have some more stuff that I dream up. Until then, friends, stay safe. Check in on your neighbors. Check in on your loved ones. Check out those Peloton exercises and, and classes. I'm telling you, if you're struggling, it's a great thing to get together. Um, not get together, but it's a great thing to pull together on the app and, and do them. Body weight stuff, cardio stuff. They have classes where if you've got dumbbells, lightweights, whatever, laying around, you can incorporate those as well. It's a great thing to sort of adjust the mindset, so to speak. Wash those hands. And when you do, 
Cinelon and bless those Patriots reigns. Down in Foxborough.